0: The production of this podcast was made possible by a grant from the Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the interviewees and do not necessarily represent the official views of the Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families, or those of the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. Inwas Nimipu Ayat, Soyapo Winitwas, Hi Simpson. Hello and thank you for joining us. I am Ty Simpson and I am a social change advocate at the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. At the coalition, we hosted a short series of podcasts to intentionally center the work of indigenous leaders and tribal community members as their work and experience relates to domestic violence victim service provision. The creation of this podcast grew from our participation working with a family violence prevention services grant Our role was to facilitate connections with three tribal nations and one urban indigenous community to understand how these communities are impacted by domestic violence. Podcasting is an avenue of storytelling, and storytelling is an important cultural dynamic for many Indigenous people. Upon reflecting on what tools and resources would best serve and represent the Indigenous community in Idaho, we made the decision to pivot from a print campaign to podcast. The interview questions are based on the goals and objectives of the Idaho Thriving Families Work Plan, as well as from input from Tribal Site Victim Service Program directors. These are Coeur Tribe Stop Violence Program, directed by Bernie Lasalle. Start. Who we interview in a future episode: Nez Perce Tribe, It Kim T New Beginnings Program, directed by Carrie Picard, and the Shoshone Tribes and the Shoshone Bannock Tribes Victim Assistance Program, directed by Audrey Jim. The interview participants were recommended by each of the tribal site coordinators or other service providers in those communities. The series of questions specifically address experiences by each interviewee. In addition, the questions incorporate the themes from the listening sessions conducted in Year Three. Of of the Thriving Families Grant. I'll outline the connection between the themes and the guests as we move along the series. Lastly, the questions were also organically augmented to allow the conversation to move along freely. Our aim as part of the grant and within the podcast was to address the following goals. Improve systems and responses to abused parents and their children from underserved populations through the integration of a comprehensive anti-oppression and social equity framework to achieve positive change in state governmental systems that impact abused parents and their children exposed to domestic violence, build capacity of the demonstration sites and statewide service providers to better serve parents and children impacted by domestic violence, and enhance evidence and practice-informed strategies, advocacy, and interventions for children and youth from underserved communities exposed to domestic violence. I'd like to explore a bit of background for you. While well-intentioned, this project had some harmful consequences and produced some important conversations to be had by the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence Team. We had to ask ourselves, how do we carry out grant work that is in partnership with tribal communities? What were the problems faced in our project? How do we make changes for future collaboration with tribes? The methodology we used was initially harmful. The questions used in the listening sessions were also harmful. And we didn't build a safe or secure place to engage in these conversations, nor did we provide aftercare. We are learning in our work that we don't invest in the storied connections and experiences of our people to inform best practices. We talk a lot about about evidence and practice-informed strategies without engaging the voices of folks most impacted by violence. Your stories are valuable.
1: My name is Bernie Lassart. I'm a Coeur tribal member and also an elder of the tribe. I am the current manager for the Stop Violence Program, which is a domestic violence and sexual assault program since 2004. I was asked to take over by then-chairman Ernie Stensgar. I invited Bernie
0: Lassart to share her experience as an elder and as a matriarch, in addition to her role as a domestic violence and sexual assault victim services director. She built the program for her nation from the ground up, which is unique. Her story comes through all of our thriving families' grant themes, which made our conversation robust. Much of our conversation requires little context, but is so steeped in knowledge for non-Native providers. Bernie's stories focus a lot on logistics, on serving when there are no resources to serve. Indigenous communities are renowned for survival and resilience. Yes, let us applaud what we've done to survive in Indigenous communities, but let us also understand why we're in a place of desperation in the first place.
1: I'm actually a registered nurse and have been a nurse for close to 40 years. in opening this program back in 2004 it was really the first domestic violence program the tribe had they had a db coordinator out of social services for about 2 years prior and then the tribe lost Funding. When I came on in 2004, I came into an office that was used as a storage room for everybody else in social services. didn't even have a pen or a pencil or a phone, or and that's pretty much how my first day was. So I had to clear out the office in order to put an office in.
0: In our previous episode, we didn't delve deep into why storied connections are important, but Bernie speaks to it several times inadvertently. When we talk about storied connections in our Indigenous communities, we mean who is your family, who are your people. Tell me about your land and your relationship to the land. Why are you here? Storied connections ensure that we are introducing ourselves thoroughly by recognizing our parents, our grandparents, and our ancestors. We are acknowledging that our work is supported by the community we are trying to serve and that we are accountable to someone in that community. I've noticed in my time at the Coalition that storied connections are missing between non-native service providers and the indigenous communities you're trying to serve. No matter the depth of your experience as a non-native person, no matter the amount of credentials you've earned, if you do not story yourself into the community, we won't trust you.
1: I graduated from high school here in Plummer back in 1969 and uh, have lived off of the reservation up until just a couple years prior to moving or taking this position in 2004.
0: In our last episode, we discussed enrollment and blood quantum. Some tribes contemporarily have asserted sovereignty with regard to their tribal membership, which is why Bernie experienced such a high increase in tribal membership. This is a complicated facet of jurisdiction and sovereignty. As part of the Thriving Families Listening Sessions themes report, Melanie Fillmore wrote, American Indian tribal communities are in complex relationships with the federal government, state governments, and local governments. Sovereignty, as a term, is often applied to the entire tribal governance structure, meaning the tribal government as a whole holds the sole authority to impact its own people separate from federal and state authority. Sovereignty impacts indigenous individuals and families in other ways culturally. It is often said in indigenous communities that sovereignty lies with the people. Sovereignty also involves practices in which individuals act to influence their community. This meaning does not just imply the tribal governance structure, but the way indigenous individuals impact one another socially. That social consensus in decision-making can happen outside of tribal governance.
1: I'd worked in Seattle for close to 25 years, and I left at 17 when I went to nursing school. So I had not lived back on the reservation that whole time. I would come back to visit my parents or my family, but I did not live here. So in coming back, I knew a lot of people, and of course, in that time span that I was gone, there were of course a lot more people that came into the tribe and a lot of people my age that had children and grandchildren and so in a lot of faces i was a total unknown coming into and trying to start a domestic violence program right off the bat, even though I was a tribal member, I still pretty much had to gain the trust of the community. The ones that knew me that I grew up with, they knew who I was and they knew that they could trust me, but there was a lot more newer people here. Uh, When I left, I left a very small tribe. I mean, there was probably 600, 650 of us when I left. And of course, I came back to close to 2000. I pretty much had to prove myself right off the bat and that's how I started here and I think that today I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know me and a lot of even the younger kids know me as the DV lady. Um, pretty much what I'm called up at the school. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and that's it, too. They might not know my name, but they know me as the DV lady.
0: <laughs> While this is a joke or colloquialism in Bernie's community, it's important. She's the DV lady. She's known and recognized for her work, whether or not they know her name. This is the symbolism of matriarchy. They don't need to know her name to know that she's a resource, an elder, and someone they can look to for help.
1: So it was a little difficult coming back. I mean, just like anybody coming into a new position, whether you're Native or not, you're going to have to prove yourself and to gain the trust of the community. And that's a given.
0: That resonates with me since I I live away from my people, as you well know. So I spend a lot of time Mm -hmm. trying to prove myself and serve the tribe. I am fortunate. My aunties are well known and my mom is well known. And that helps me connect to other folks. Bernie and I rather inadvertently also story another connection. We talk about my favorite auntie, that Bernie has been in relationship with since they were young girls. This is where trust, family, and community live. If there's anything you take away from this piece, it's that connections take time. And I will say that again. Trust is built on connection, and connection takes time. This is where trust, family, and community live. You
1: know my Auntie
0: Simone, right?
1: <laughs> so Yes, yes. Uh, oh yeah, she was one of my friends. And you know, when we were in, oh my gosh, junior high... <laughs> Oh my gosh! You've known her for a long time. I've known her a lot of. Uh, well, you know, my mother is Nespers and so I still have family that are down in Nespers country. But yeah, when we were in junior high, the tribe, the Nez Perce, the Coeur the Spokane's, and the Kootenays, we all went to camp right down here in and That. that occurred for i don't know probably about four years and so that's where i met a lot of nezperce people and i got to be friends with a lot of them kept in contact for quite a while as a matter of fact i talked to simone just up until a few years ago you know we're all a lot older now that's for sure
0: Between me, you and all of our listeners, she's my favorite auntie. She's always auntie. Uh, she? Yeah, she's always yeah. giving me like really strong encouragement about like what I'm doing and she's the auntie that encourages me to make mistakes. You know, like uh uh-huh. like putting mm-hmm. myself out there is a risk. But she was always the one who's yeah. like make the mistakes and you learn from those and So one of the things that this grant talks about is how do we best serve or enhanced services for underserved populations. And I don't necessarily love that description, but in your experience in working in your program and building your program, what, what is your reaction to the label underserved?
1: When I first hear that term and it makes it sound like we're in a third world country. And I know that it isn't meant in that regard, but it, I think just the term itself is kind of putting a class to us almost oppressive. And I know that it's not meant to be, but when I hear underserved, it feels like that we're less than, than others. I don't like that term. I much prefer marginalized. I don't know why, but it's the underserved that just kind of, I don't know, it just puts us in a a class that I don't think is is 100% correct. It just makes you feel lesser, you know, puts us in a different class. In that
0: same vein, you've built this program over the last 16 years. Did you have any obstacles? When
1: I first came into this, I had to dig myself out of this room. I had to dig out the storage that was kept in here. So that's how I started. And the tribe had gotten a stop grant uh, and it was $150,000 for two years. And that is exactly what we had, 150000 over two years. It's not a great amount of budget if you consider salaries and benefits, which eat up most of that, and client assistance. So we really started out with very little. I recognized when I came in that in order to provide better services or enhance services or try to get the most for my clients, I had to reach out and to, to network with others and I hit the ground running getting out there all over. Uh, I think the Women's Center was up in Coeur d'Alene and, and right now it's called the Safe Passages, but I reached out to them and I reached out to the Idaho Coalition, to the OASIS program, the YWCA in Spokane. So I did, I just reached out to try to get whatever I could just the support. I was the only one here for about the first year and a half, almost two years. So I pretty much did it on my own. And it's a good thing I was 16 years younger because I sure as I couldn't do it today. I realized that I had to reach out and get support and more money. I'm a nurse. One of the things that was asked of me when I first took this position was if I wrote grants, and I'm like, write grants, I'm an ER nurse, we don't have time to write grants in the ER. And that's pretty much what I told the director at that time. (laughs) I can do nothing about writing a grant, I mean, I could do term papers or, you know, that kind of thing. And then he said, okay, well, you can do this. I just got in the cupboards and I took out a couple of old grants and I read those. And a rural grant came along and I thought, okay, I'm going to go for this. So I was able to expand. Fortunately, got that grant and was able to hire another person to help me. In addition, I also got funding for the tribe's 52-week DV offender program, the VIP. So I was able to do that within just a few years. I expanded services right away and we just continued to grow. From day one, I saw whoever came to the door, whether they were domestic violence and or sexual assault. I saw it all. I never turned anybody away. I'm an ER nurse and we don't turn anybody away in the ER, so that's much my philosophy here. Although we didn't really acquire a funding for a sexual assault program until 2009. I still saw them prior to that. Anybody who came in the door, that's who I saw and provided services for. I also was lucky I had a little bit of family violence prevention funds that actually gave me funding to provide emergency shelter for victims and their children. The tribe, we don't have a shelter. I made deals and collaborated, like I said, with everybody in the area up here in Northern Idaho. One of my big collaborators was actually the casino and still is to this day in providing the emergency shelter for my victims. It's probably the safest place she could be, even though it's pretty well open. It's the only place that has security and surveillance 24 hours a day. I have a protocol that I started with the casino pretty early on, probably in 2005, in admitting my clients and their children to the casino for shelter. And that's going by, you know, we have code names and surveillance knows that they're there and you know, the staff knows what the victims can do and who they can have there, who they can't. We still have that collaboration going on to this day and the same protocol, really. Even though there's only three of us workers in here at any given time, I have contractors that provide counseling. They're here on a weekly basis for both victims and their children. I still have the 52-week batterer intervention program that has probably made the most impact on our cases throughout the years since 2015. 2006 when it originally got off the ground. I can't tell you how many clients that have graduated from that, people that I would have never guessed stuck it out more than two months at the most, you know, after two to three months, they're getting into it and their consistent, they're attending, they're getting their certificate.
0: Bernie speaks to supporting other tribes in building their programs. Her support and collaboration is powerful and also an example of matriarchy. We serve and support each other regardless of tribal affiliation. We look to other nations to set examples of innovation, then try our best to emulate it across communities. We see this with gaming, healthcare, and language rejuvenation as well. Historically, we're nations who migrated with seasons and interacted with one another on those journeys. We shared knowledge and expertise to ensure collective survival and resources. I think this is a unique characteristic in our nations. I love to hear it, especially when it comes to our collective efforts to mitigate and prevent violence, much like Bernad describes here.
1: When the Nest Purse finally got theirs, I sent them all my policies. I had done this before, and so they, rather than reinvent the wheel, they asked me, for policies and protocols, and I sent them everything that I had uh, to get this going and where I found my contractors. And, and that's certainly one thing that I have done throughout the years is served as a consult for various tribes all over the Pacific Northwest. And I've even got calls from California and even from tribes back East looking for policies and procedures on something. I think even though we're a little dinky, program, we provide a lot of services, and not just victim services, but also we do outreach and we do TA without even knowing it. You know, when we're people ask me for a grant, you know, can you send me your grant? You know, sure, I have no problem sending you what I wrote, you know, use whatever you can, you know, tailor it to your own needs. I have no problem sending anything out because I know that when I first started out, I had very little to go on. Certainly didn't have much support, even within the tribe here, because they pretty much just threw me in and just let me be. Nobody knew much about DV, how to support another person that was doing this. They just didn't. This was totally out of everybody else's realm. And so, because I am a nurse and a policy person, I started out writing policies and procedures, because I figured the next person that comes on will have some idea how to run the offender program, what it takes to do that, the counseling, the emergency shelter. So I have a policy book that's been ongoing since day one, a work in progress. And I wish that I had had something like that when I first came on because I did not have a clue. I'd never worked for the tribe in my whole life. I'd been in a hospital or in in the emergency room or in the intensive care unit someplace out there in Seattle, but never worked for the tribe. I'd heard about the politics. My father was chairman for a number of years, and so I heard a lot of stuff that I didn't like regarding Indian politics their family politics, the fire at will, because that was foreign to me. Even when I first came on and took this position, I continued to work over in Seattle because I wasn't gonna put all my eggs in one basket, just irk somebody off and then have them fire me. (laughs) I just wasn't gonna have it again that was part of that distrust. So it actually was kind of on both sides because I kind of felt the same way. I felt like a foreigner in a place where I grew up and graduated in. I had to prove myself to everybody else. And I also had to prove to myself too that I can do this.
0: The historical and institutional memory of the way that you built this program plays such a huge part in the way that we you know, implement the grant work. It's rare that I've had the director of the program also be the person who started the program, and you've seen it evolve over the last 16 years. Uh-huh. That's huge. That's, again, like I said, a unique experience that we don't have. Bernie's story is dense with practical solutions to bridge building across communities. Non-Native providers have access to training and have access to hearing feedback from indigenous survivors should they intentionally make space for it. Support groups can be renamed as story circles or community conversations, but prompts can be focused on survivor stories and or experience with domestic violence or sexual assault service providers. This is the part where I assert that indigenous people are the world's greatest storytellers. Everything we touch and say is a story, something meaningful for the world. Our art, our music, and even our laughter tells a story. This network of folks their contractors, the counselors. I understand you also have some law enforcement partners. My assumption then is mm-hmm. that some of them are non-native. How do you introduce them into working with the Native American community? What, like, Because I know that they don't show up with the appropriate knowledge that they need. How do you get them ready to work with us?
1: I had some collaboration within the tribe. I worked very closely with the tribal police because they were my primary source of referrals. So I built this relationship with the other departments within the tribe I had direct input in a lot of the policies that I put in place, in particular with the BIP program. You know, the judges back then, they wanted to be a part of making this policy because they wanted to hold offenders, the abusers, be held accountable, which was a bonus for my program because that's what my federal funders wanted, not just getting a slap on the wrist and being sent home, but actually held accountable. So I had direct input from various courts, personnel, including both judges and the prosecutors, and probation, and the tribal police, and I also got the social services program involved. They were on that team, as well as our clinic and at that time we just called it the quarterly meeting and then you hear the catchphrase the new term that came on within our federal grantors and it was called coordinated community response team before i even really knew what it was we had already been doing it this is something that we had done as just this group of people that i put together probably in 2005 and then when we started getting new grants and meeting new policies and getting input from everybody, then I realized, oh, this is our CCR. Before I even had a term for it, there it was. And then, of course, in 2009, when we acquired our um, sexual assault grant, the popular thing at that time, or it still is, is a Sexual Assault Response Team, or SART. I had decided that, yeah, we could have a SART right here on the res with just tribal programs, but it wasn't going to encompass everything that we needed. We still depended on an outside source to do our sexual assault exams. We still depended on uh, some outside sources, the FBI and the tribal prosecutors. At that time, nobody else in the area, including the Women's Center or the OASIS program, had received any sexual assault grants just the tribe did. So I decided, okay, let's open this up and we'll do this intertribal collaborative SART is what it's called. So I just reached out to various off-reservation organizations like the Kootenai County Prosecutor in there between Women's Center, and I can't remember what it was, and also the hospital where we send our sexual assault victims for uh, forensic exams. So I invited a lot of people to come to this table and actually was surprised at the response that we got. We had probably 20 to 25 representatives from a lot of organizations that actually started coming to the meetings. And we had MOUs back then, and everybody signed. And, and then we went along with that for a couple of years, and then things kind of just went by the wayside. We had some change of staffing in here and fell just a bit for a couple of years. And then we got it back going again, and it's been probably four, five years now, probably. and we still meet on a quarterly basis. I think there's many things that came out of this type of start, and that is those non-natives, there was a lot of misunderstanding on how to treat Native victims. There was just a misunderstanding across the board. They didn't understand the jurisdiction. It would freak nurses out when the FBI showed up at the emergency room like, what the heck is going on? We've got the FBI here. And one thing about this team is there's been a much greater understanding across the board, all jurisdictions, the roles and the differences in tribal jurisdiction versus non-tribal. And I can tell you that the nurses or the doctors up in the ER no longer question why the FBI are there. They know why they're there.
0: I should note here that because our communities are so small, intimate, and interconnected, disclosing personal experiences around violence can be harmful and in some cases exacerbated. It is not a far reach that a perpetrator of violence is also a tribal police officer. It is not a far reach that a perpetrator of violence is a spiritual leader. And it is definitely not a far reach that a perpetrator of violence is on the governing body of the tribe itself. Our communities are in a unique time because our younger generations are brave and fearless about having honest discussions about violence, addiction, mental health, and trauma. As a storyteller, I believe the more we tell our stories out loud, the more we remove the shame from the experiences. We endured hundreds of years of trauma as an indigenous community. We survived by keeping our mouths shut, not talking about what was happening to us literally saved our lives in the face of unimaginable violence and dehumanization fast forward to now we are very careful tenuous and even averse to speaking to our experiences with violence because of these historical atrocities in general discretion is important and even couched in the law but we know in small communities gossip permeates this is why Bernie as an elder and a matriarch is so deeply trusted what happens to us stays with her
1: we have victims that we stand up there a lot more comfortable in going because they don't feel like foreigner, that a nurse up there that is taking care of them has a better understanding of where this victim has come from. If you're on a tribe, you know that there's just a lack of understanding. I, I think we're seeing it now with things that are going on in present day, you know, not understanding where the other person has come from. You know what? She's not just here because of sexual assault, but there's other things that brought her here. You know, understanding the background of the other person. What has she been through before tonight? I think that it's made for better relations between tribe and the surrounding community. I just had a SART meeting just last week and... I don't know, there was probably 10, 11 of us. We do meet on a quarterly basis and we do educations. We do we invite each other to trainings and conferences. And we were able to provide sexual assault nurse examiner trainings up until, I think the last one is probably about two, three years ago. But we trained many of the nurses that are there up at Kootenai right now. So I was able to, with our sexual assault funds, use some of that funding to train nurses and mid-level practitioners and doctors in treating native clients. That has been a bonus. We've done that across the board. So we helped a lot of the nurses at Kootenai and helped them better to understand and take care of the patients that we send them. So I think it's been a, these teams I think are great.
0: You're illustrating how important it is to have like interagency, inter-organizational collaboration. I never would have put thought into a coordinated response team for both tribes and like the neighboring Mm -hmm. hospital and the neighboring Mm -hmm. law enforcement right like Mm -hmm. I mean it makes sense in the long run so that folks are well taken care of but the education piece to improve understanding and community I think is absolutely necessary we've got a lot to learn from you Bernie Because Bernie is a matriarch and an elder and a director, her wisdom is invaluable. I opened the space for direct feedback from her because non-Native organizations have an intense learning curve when partnering and serving Native communities. So you not only run this program, but you're an elder in the community. Can you talk a little bit about what that means, both for you, for your professional role, for your role in the community? What does it mean for you to be an elder, for you to be a matriarch?
1: They always say, you know, you get wiser with age, and I'm not so sure that's true. Some days I'm smarter than others, I guess. (laughs) 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 Because I've been in this position for a number of years, and then now I'm an elder, I certainly think that people look at me with a lot more trust now that I'm an older person, as well as the 16 years that i put into this program as a manager and advocate, and I've served both roles. You know, i not just managed, but I'm an advocate, period, from day one for both sexual assault and domestic violence. Along with that comes added trust. You know, people that come in, they know that when they tell me something, it stays here, it doesn't go anyplace else, and that is extremely, extremely important to our Native clients. Because we live in such a small, confined community, that confidentiality piece is utmost importance here. You can't say anything, and I know that people come to me knowing that they trust me not to say anything to anybody else or talk to anybody else. It stays here. I think when... I became an elder, I think that was pretty well solidified. Back in 1980, I actually moved back to the res and worked at the, then it was the little IHS clinic. It was a little house up on the hill and Helen Wooten was up there. And I actually came back for a year and both of my parents were alive back then. And I just remember my mom came to visit me or something and she says, Oh, I saw so-and-so at the clinic. What was she doing? in there. And I'm like, I can't tell you. And to her, it was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> she says, why can't you tell me? I'm like, I can't tell you that, you know. But yeah, that's kind of our community. <laughs> Nothing is sacred. <laughs> <laughs>
0: My family, we sweat, we go sweat all the time. And like uh-huh. I remember my mom and my grandmas just always like telling my business as a little kid to all the other aunties uh-huh. and grandmas that sweat, uh-huh. right? It's almost such a cool yeah. thing. And then like, <laughs> it's almost funny. <laughs> like, they're offended when we can't tell them people's secrets. You know <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I love our little community. Oh, so great. I know. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about vision for the future. With all of this work, like the work that I do with the Coalition and the work that you're doing in Coeur what does healing look like? What do we want for our communities after all of this work, ideally, is no longer necessary?
1: As far as healing goes, I think that we could do a lot more healing. And in just the listening sessions we did, that was actually one of the things that several of my clients talked about was the healing methods and doing more sweats or doing more traditional things. And I'm really glad that the federal government is finally now allowing some of the funding to go towards some of those traditional healing modalities, because I really think that's where it's at. I mean, if you look at the stuff that's going on today, in particular, after Floyd was killed, and the big protest and the big movement and the healing that's gotta take place for what was done to people of color, in particular, black people. It's the same thing that's gone on with natives. And it is that healing piece that we have to do. Do we depend on somebody else to do it for us? No, we shouldn't. But yeah, in some communities, we, we have to have it available. We have to have put that out there for people to take advantage of, if they need it. You can't force people to to heal. I have difficulty here in the Stop Violence program. The offender program has been super great. It's like counseling that men have needed for umpteen years and they're doing it as a requirement of the court, not something they would have chosen, but they're doing quite well at it. I have victim counseling, but it is really hard to even get a lot of my victims to come in for counseling for any length of time. That's something that's very simple. You just come in and talk about your hurts and try to heal and move forward. And that's difficult to do with victims. You can't mandate them to come in to take advantage of healing or take advantage of our healthy relationship classes or support group. I mean, we've even done retreats, you know, traditional retreats and to get them to actually do something is like pulling teeth. Oftentimes, some of them will come and take advantage of it. But for a certain length of time, but it is difficult, and you can't mandate them. OVW sees that as re-victimizing, so you can't make them, the courts can't make them come to classes or support group, yet that is continues to be a piece missing. I mean, we've got a lot of resources out there, and certainly a lot of traditional healing resources, but what the answer is, I don't know, but I just know that healing is a big piece that is, is a gap that's not filled. We can't depend on somebody to do our own healing. We have to do it ourselves.
0: Something to put on my plate, I think, for how this work could look, like my particular role at the Coalition, I've been trying to navigate and brainstorm how healing spaces could look, where folks will opt in and show up, but it's open to Mm -hmm. everyone. And I think that there might be some stigma attached to showing up for healing spaces for survivors. They're essentially saying, like, I am a survivor. I'm a victim of domestic violence. Now I'm going to go to this space for healing and then may feel some level of shame attached to that. How do we remove the shame from
1: the healing? That happened to us with the support group. I can't tell you how many Wednesday evenings I spent here by myself waiting for somebody to show up. And every now and then I'd get a few people in on a Wednesday for support group. Throughout the years, we tried to do things differently. We would have a support group in the different locations, you know, one in DeSmet or the next time in Worley and then Plummer. And, and then we kind of changed them to classes. You know, we would have women's healing or women's health classes, even a cooking class. But that was just our way of instituting different things so a few years ago I don't know probably about three or four years ago we decided to just do away with the term support group period and it's called healthy relationships class that has actually been a key even though it is just a support group essentially we do different things and we do some cultural things in here but we also learn something about healthy relationships so that has actually been a key for us and it's because support group indicates there's something wrong with you that you need support. It's not a name that people want to be associated with. I think it just stigmatizes victims even more. So we changed it to something totally different. No, we don't have 20 people in here on a class, but we might have 10. So it's much better than it was just by changing the name.
0: Yeah, language matters. How can the coalition be better at implementing our programming around domestic violence, around serving Native American communities more efficiently, effectively when serving Native
1: American communities? I think just understanding that we are a very small program. We don't have the luxury you know, of 10 staff to do things two of us in here and I have a triple role because I haven't even included that I'm director of all of social services. So I think just understanding that tribes, we don't have that luxury of staff. I don't have somebody who can just work on one project and see that project through and do it a hundred percent. I don't. We have to divvy out our time between many things, not just for our own programming, but, you know, our federal requirements and and tribal requirements and victims. It's just us. And I think with most tribes, you will have just a very bare minimum of staff to do things, and I think this understanding that when we got started on this project with you guys a few years ago, I cannot tell you how many of those little evaluation forms that were sent to us there were stacks. Number one, we don't need 300 evaluation forms, 500. We don't need them because we didn't see that many people. We're lucky to see, you know, two, three, four, but they were coming in. So every time stuff like that comes in, it's like, okay, I need to be doing something. Like I have more time to do more. I think just understanding that I know what you're looking for. I know what you guys need to do to, you know, to comply with your federal guidelines. I would get things from the coalition, you know, another survey, oh, please don't give me another survey. It's a lot of expectations. On these little programs that have very limited staff. I just think that the work that the coalition is doing, trying to get to the bottom of this systemic racism that's going on now, and I just think the coalition has been forerunners for Idaho in trying to make sure that everybody is served and everybody is served equally.
0: I want to underscore Bernie's point. Violence in communities of color, whether it's police violence, lateral violence, or intimate partner violence, stems from deeply embedded racism and settler colonialism. We have to have difficult conversations about racism, power, and privilege to build cultural understanding.